This is 169 Projects. I'm Michael Tutton. I'm insatiably curious and excited about finding great work done in digital signage and visual communications. This podcast is designed to dig into some of those projects, find out what they're all about and how they came together. That might be a big experiential job, a massive video wall, projection mapping, or a cool one-to-one interactive project. Each episode will get into the thinking behind the project and how it came together by talking to the people responsible. Just like the Mothership Podcast 16.9, this one's available online, or you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or using your favorite podcast listening app. I'm grateful and excited to announce that the podcast now has a sponsor thanks to Mahler Digital Signage. That's right, 16.9 Projects is sponsored by Mahler Digital Signage. Put your digital signage network in expert hands. I have a real soft spot for ambient content that is generated by data, and the lobby of 2 Queen Street East in Toronto has it in spades. The original 1910 bank branch facade is backed with the conveniences of a modern office and unique lobby content that builds on the notion of past and present. Forge Media created the digital art installation entitled Passage of Light, which combines constantly shifting generative art and the requisite tenant branding and event information, all displayed on two 12-foot tall columns. Created using Unity, the 3D gaming engine, the content is never the same twice because it isn't video, it's actually being created live. One really subtle aspect is a color matching element outside the building that connects those passing with what's happening inside. I spoke with Lawrence Roberts, partner of Forge Media, to hear more about how the project came together and how they turned wind speed at the airport into content downtown. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, what, uh, what can you tell us about the project and what it looks like when you stand there in the lobby? Right. Um, so the project is actually located at 2 Queen Street East, which is in the heart of downtown Toronto. Um, and this particular piece is kind of multifaceted, but the, uh, the one that we're focusing on is on the interior lobby of the building. Um, and it is a, kind of a serene generative art piece uh, that has a digital signage component in it. Um, but that's often hidden, especially if there's nothing to show. It just becomes literally a piece of public art. Um, that's constantly shifting and moving, and it's a bit mesmerizing, actually. It's a, it's a nice kind of um, oasis in the uh, sort of busy, bustling uh, downtown core. And physically, what does it look like when you're standing there? What, you know, yeah. Is it a screen? Is it dozens uh, yeah. of screens? Like what's, physically, what are you looking at? Right. So uh, it's actually two columns, two 12-foot columns of microtiles. Um, and each of those columns is uh, individually separate from each other. Um, but they actually are coordinated in terms of the content that they're showing. But they're not mirroring each other. They're actually two separate pieces running the same piece of software. And that gives it this sort of organic feel that was actually very intentional. Um, So inside the space, when you walk in, you're sort of greeted by these two humongous um, digital columns of um, rear projection. And there's room, there's space in those columns for advertising or other sorts of messaging aside from the, right. the ambient content. Yeah, it's not advertising per se. Um, what we have created is a, a, a digital layer over top of the uh, art piece that will allow the tenants um, and the client, Brookfield's our client in this case, um, to put posters up for upcoming events, things that are happening within uh, the building, um, posters for things like Earth Hour and that kind of thing. Um, But the bigger portion of it was actually to be able to greet individuals as they came in. So if the tenant has a special guest coming in, they can actually, uh, for a duration, uh, set that message. And so as people walk in, they will see their name with a little bit of an instruction in terms of where to go or, you know, a little description that the client wants to kind of have there. 
And the nice thing with this is that it's actually set to a dura duration of time. So it's not just going to stay up there because classically people forget to take things out of content management systems and it's there for weeks and then you, you know, it's out of date and doesn't really make sense to be there anymore. What we've done within our content management system is allowed for a specific duration to be set. And so uh, an hour before that duration uh, begins, um, it will show up. So there's always sort of a buffer. And then an hour afterwards, it will actually be taken out of the system. Um, and that way, the client doesn't have to think about, oh, yeah, I need to go back in and remove that particular message. And do all the tenants have access to that? Uh, any tenant who uh, has kind of buy-in to that particular component has it. Not everybody within the building, they can. It's, it's an opt-in um, that they do through Brookfield. Brookfield actually controls all of that content themselves. So they have to actually connect with Brookfield to get the content onto the screens. So it's not open to the public. And then tell us about the outdoor element to this as right. well, instead of just the lobby. Yeah, yeah. So uh, part of the entire job was to actually rebrand and do uh, signage and wayfinding for the building. Um, this is a historic building, and they really wanted to um, upgrade it into sort of the modern era. It's a tier one office tower, which basically means it's very important. And um, so what they had wanted, it, the, the office tower itself was very much falling into disrepair, um, you know, getting behind the times and was starting to feel um, dated. And so Brookfield really wanted to upgrade this into the new era. And part of that was actually having us rebrand, completely redo the signage. And that included a, a very large tenant pylon outside, which also has LEDs uh, correlated into it. So it's um, it's actually reading the same color palette that the digital art is uh, portraying. So our piece is actually uh, running over 24 hours and the colors change over that 24 hours period. And so the pylon is actually reflecting that in tandem. It's not the exact same content because the pylon itself is using very low res LEDs, but it's just a nice kind of correlation bringing you know, the outside in and vice versa. So it's envisioned as an entry experience. It's not really sort of like we wanted to do a public art piece within the building. It's really um, a whole experience for the tenants and, and the people who are coming into the building to have this all new kind of way of approaching um, to Queen in an entirely new way. Like, you know, it's been there for so long, everyone kind of knows it. Even if you've never gone inside the building, it's a bit of a fishbowl. There's a big glass um, exterior, or well, big glass interior. Um, so you can kind of see it at any time of the day. Lights are always on. Um, and because it's at the corner of Young and Queen, this is a very busy hub. There's a subway station right there. There's streetcars that pass it all the time. It's a very heavy pedestrian traffic in general. And so um, we wanted to actually make people take notice and not just sort of walk by it without really paying attention. Um, so I think we've achieved that in that it's, it's actually an entry experience which starts from the curbside and actually goes straight inside. And even as you're exiting the building, we call it an entry experience, but of course you enter and exit a building. So on the exit of the building, you still get to see all of the stuff once again and actually notice that it's changed in the duration of time that you're there very likely will have shifted in color and uh, perhaps even actually in movement uh, because it is a movement-based piece as well. Which brings us to what I love so much about this, okay. which is what's making all of that change? <laughs> what's happening that 
causes the colors to change right. and the movement to change, because right. I love it. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. Um, so it's actually, as I said, it's a generative uh, digital art piece. And what we mean by that is basically it's not a set piece of video. This is what most people, when they walk by it, they go, oh, it's a nice video. And in fact, even during the process of working uh, with Christy and uh, with Brookfield and everyone, it was actually a bit of a challenge to get them to understand that what we were creating was software, not actually uh, kind of canned content that would just continue to play over and over again. Um, part of the reason why we actually wanted to approach it that way is keeping things fresh. That's one of the big challenges with anything which is going to be a permanent installation is when does it just become kind of the background noise within your day-to-day -day kind of experience of the space? Um, and how do you actually combat that? Because these things are there. It's not like a flash pan thing. It's, it's there permanently for hopefully years and years and years um, if it goes well. And so far... It has. Um, but what we wanted to do is actually find a way to um, keep it fresh. And so the very first thing to start thinking about is data. What kind of data can we bring in to um, shift the overall animation in a way? And there's so many ways to express that. But in this particular case, what we ended up doing is taking on the nautical theme within the building. Um, there is a huge piece of public art at the very front, which is actually a lead line of an anchor, of a real um, anchor from, um, the ocean, from some ocean line or somewhere um, that they've actually put into the building. The building itself has this kind of wavy uh, uh, ceiling um, that literally has this kind of you know ocean kind of feel to it. Um, and we wanted to continue that theme. So that thought of water sort of what is what drove the entire piece. And so the piece itself, we call it Passage of Light. Um, that is because we are thinking about light hitting and refracting off the surface of water. So not necessarily thinking like, okay, it's a surface of water. Everyone can do surface of water. There's nothing really special about that. And we wanted to make it artful as well. So we wanted to abstract it. So we have a mesh, which is essentially a bunch of fractals. And we are moving those with wind speed. So there is an algorithm that we've built within Unity 3D, which is the software engine that we've create, uh, created the piece with. And that algorithm is being driven by wind speeds. So the wave form is actually amplified uh, or reduced based off of current wind, uh, wind speeds. So we're checking current wind speeds from the airport and just basically driving the entire piece from that. That's the one part. There's two. So there's two factors. One is wind, the other is time. So the wind is actually more the movement itself. It's actually the undulation of the fractal mesh to give that feeling of water. Um, the other portion is time. What we wanted to actually do is have something every time you walk past it, it was a little different. It felt a little different. And this is where the idea of passage of light actually came from is when you look at the sky for a over the course of a day, it changes quite drastically in some cases. And on really beautiful summer days, it really changes because you have those sort of glorious sunrises and, and that uh, you know, very soft dusk into the evening hours. And so we took the colors, um, and this was a challenge because 
meshing colors is always difficult because you end up sometimes with muddiness. You don't want that sort of brown color. So, you know, most of the time that we spent on this project was actually making sure we picked the right set of colors to blend into each other. And it's not set, that's the other thing. So this is the very difficult part of doing anything generative is that you don't have the control that you normally would if it was a set piece of content. Um, that's the easy way around. We're not too much into doing easy here. It, we Forge is very much about innovation and we really like to try to push ourselves um, to the limits of what we can potentially pull off. You know, we, don't, we always enter a project kind of not knowing if what we want to do is 100% feasible, but we, we power through and we actually try to figure out a way to do it. That's innovation for you. You don't always know if you're gonna succeed. There is a good chance of failure in these kinds of things, but if you put in you know, the blood, sweat, and tears, which you know, is required in this kind of thing, hopefully you'll make it through to the other side. Um, so there was a lot of time sitting and staring at screens while the colors were shifting between each other just to see if we could get um, a very clean, beautiful set of colors for 24 hours. And so the piece itself is changing on an hourly basis. And it's got uh, a huge amount of um, gradients that it kind of pulls from. And what it's doing is actually kind of um, moving the gradient on, uh, on a vertical axis. So what we're doing is we're kind of panning down a very, very big gradient of color. And then another gradient is kind of fading through as well as panning. So this is why you never really get two colors at the same time, because the gradient pushed through will never happen at exactly the same point. It's not it's not set to a rhythm that way. It's actually set on almost an organic rhythm. And so each time it comes in, it will actually be blending two to three separate colors to get its sort of overall gradient tone that's showing on the screen. So the screen is actually showing three layers. One is the color, which is time. One is the fractal form and that sort of undulation, which is the wind. And then we actually have to add a little bit more of that watery feel, a water caustic, which is actually constantly kind of trickling. So it has this kind of um, almost underwater feel in a way. It, it's, it's funny, in certain times, if you look at it, you'll see something that looks like it's underwater, and then at other times, like it's above the water. It kind of depends on how, what the colors are doing and, and uh, sort of how you're approaching it. And um, everyone reads it slightly differently, which is, Perfect, that's kind of what we want. We don't want it to look the same to every single person out there. That's, that's not art anymore to me. It's, it's something that can't be interpreted. It's sort of a forced interpretation rather than something that allows someone to you know, read themselves into it or read their experiences into it. I'd like to thank our sole sponsor, Mahler Digital Signage, for their patronage. It helps cover the costs and means the podcast can visit DSC to gather some more great interviews. Here's Mahler's Luis Villafane. Hi there, this is Luis from Mahler Digital Signage. You can find us at MahlerDSO.com. We plan, install and manage digital signage networks for marketing projects, advertising and retail. We don't sell PCs, we don't sell screens, we don't sell advertising or do physical installations. At Mahler Digital Signage, we offer an all-around consultancy service and project management that will help you find the best hardware and software solutions to deploy from scratch your digital signage network. 
We adapt to what your company needs, from a small to large networks, with a direct support from our engineers within 20 minutes. So at Matter, we manage and design networks. We manage and design digital signage networks. That is it. Check out our website at www.mallardso.com. The color palette you speak of, mm-hmm. did, would, is it a, a notion that you're excluding certain colors from that or including colors in that palette? Um, so it was actually a set color gradient that we built. It's five gradients for every hour. And we were looking at what happens in in real time. Like essentially it's, this is where the artful part really comes in as, as an artist, we're looking at the sky and kind of interpreting what would dusk look like or what does dawn look like. Um, and that can be an array of colors. So what we really created was um, every gradient has three tones in it. And so we have um, an opportunity to introduce quite a bit of a color array. And uh, as I said, it was a lot of trial and error to try to find the right tones that work. So in the morning, you're seeing sort of very light purples, um, oranges, very, very vivid oranges, and a little bit of uh, a kind of a pinky uh, color to it. So that sort of softer tone of, of sunrise. Whereas in the evening for uh, dusk, we were actually using much more vibrant color, so darker purples, really vivid magentas, very deep reds and very deep oranges. And when those start to blend in together, it really creates quite a spectacular visual. Um, and that being pushed through our, our, our Unity 3D um, program, we also have added a little bit of um, bloom to the whole thing. So it gets a little bit just sort of oversaturated. Um, the whole piece was really about color and movement. So color was such a big critical thing. It's part of the reason why we actually went with the Christine Microtiles because it is a glass area. If we were to do just displays, you might get too much reflection off of it, which dampens down the color. Um, It also happened to be the perfect fit for the space that we were, literally the perfect fit because the space that was actually left uh, for us was two Microtiles wide. I mean, it couldn't have been more perfect. It really was two microtiles wide, and I think it's nine high, if I remember right, um, creating that 12-foot sort of by a two-foot column. And it left just enough room for maneuverability for maintenance. And, um, and yeah, I just honestly you just don't run into those kinds of opportunities very frequently. Usually there's always a problem with trying to, you know, retrofit something into an existing space. It's a lot easier when you're working in a space which is kind of open and and being built, but when you're walking into a space which has been there for many, many years, that was actually our biggest fear is when we came in, we didn't know really what they were looking for, where they wanted us to put it, and um, it was almost like a, you know, a glorious godsend that there was this open space for us that just sort of did the trick. I want to get to the build and, and mm-hmm. the uh, for sure. kind of what was envisioned. Uh, but can you tell me what's actually working behind the scenes? So now you've got data from the airport right. and you've got these shapes being created and everything. What, right. What's pulling it all together and what's displaying it? Um, so in terms of the technology, uh, as I said, the software was built with Unity 3D. There is actually a flash overlay. Um, so we're using two separate pieces of software blended. So the actual art piece is being run by Unity 3D, which has got the algorithms that we created in it. It has the fractal mesh and the colors and the caustic and all of that. So all of that's being run by that. 
to Unity doesn't handle uh, digital signage component very well, and um, the logic and all of that kind of stuff just doesn't really suit it. It's really intended for gaming. That's where what its primary use is. We're definitely using it in a slightly um, off kilter way, but we kind of like to do that. So um, on the on the other side, the flash layer is something that we've used for many years. So it's it's um, it's an an error application. It's being programmed in, in uh, Adobe Flash, but it's uh, in the final result, it's an actual piece of software from um, the or an error application. Um, and that because all we're doing really is overlaying on top of it, it could be very, very simple. And then we've really just built the custom content management system to interlink with that flash piece. So we're using scale form um, to actually overlay the two pieces together. And that's essentially what's kind of creating the whole, uh, what's on the screens themselves. The screens are micro tiles. So uh, we have a bunch of ECUs uh, running in behind that's sort of stitching the whole canvas together and making sure that the resolution is what we need it to be. And uh, we have two CPUs and a server. So each column has a, uh, a computer running the actual software. And then there's a server, which is just really making them communicate so that the signage sort of works in tandem correctly um, so that they're, they're mirrored. Um, whereas the actual background isn't. We didn't want the background to be mirrored because we, we wanted it to feel much more organic than that. Um, so we've left those kind of not communicating to one, one another at all. Um, they're reading time. Um, so that the time is sort of what's syncing them up in terms of what gradients they're pulling. But this is kind of when you're standing there and looking at them, even knowing that they're running the same software, this is where you really start to see they are not the same thing. And that kind of goes to show like the piece itself, you'll never see it the same way twice, which was what we wanted. We didn't, we wanted it to feel familiar without feeling stagnant, static, or just repetitive. Um, because it's always the thing that you always fight, right? If, with any of these kinds of things, the longer that it stays up there, the more likely it is to start being ignored and or, oh yeah, I've seen it. And with our piece, I mean, it's even happens for me. I live actually not far from the space and I, I go past this building a lot and it's still, every time I go by it, it's catching my eye and making, and every time I see it, it's, it's not the same thing. It's very much different every time I go by. Um, as far as the LEDs for the exterior, that's just being run by a Philips, uh, a little Philips box that allows us to program the color gradient in. And a very, it's very rudimentary. It's not a very complicated piece for the exterior. Um, the, we had kind of grand visions to make a very, you know, robust LED mesh inside this thing so we could really have this thing actually fully replicating what was happening inside. But budgets are budgets, and so you can only do so much. And in these cases, you have to kind of find the best possible solution for within the budget that you had. So uh, we went with a, a, a little bit more of a lower res piece and just really made it more of a soft glow. And actually, it worked out really well. It might have been too competey. Uh, in the end, if we had done you know something outside and inside that was more or less the same thing, um, in some ways I'm actually kind of happy with where it ended up because it is sort of more this kind of soft, subtle piece outside that lets the interior piece really it draws people's eyes inward. 
So speaking of budgets, how early in the process were you brought in and, and what kind of direction were you given for something as uh, <laughs> ambient as this? Right. Um, so this was a really rare case where um, we were brought in right at the outset. Um, when they started to, to discuss redoing the whole entry experience, it began as a pure environmental graphic design job. So signage and wayfinding, branding, and then really that was it. And it was something which... Um, our client with Brookfield had worked with us before. We wanted to actually uh, work with them again and and have actually multiple times now. But she was really wanting us to come in and say she had these two old pieces of, uh, well, it was one piece of public art, but two kind of pieces that were existing in the space. They'd been there for many, many years. And she wanted a refresh. She wanted something to uh, replace what was there that would modernize the building. She did want digital. That was one of the requests that she had. And that was all she said. And she said, come up with something. And for us, that's, you know, a dream job. Honestly, how many times does a client just kind of give you carte blanche? And, and um, so we, we went away and we actually, uh, there was no budget attached to it as of yet. She just wanted an idea of what we could do. And so we, we went away and within very short order kind of came back with this concept. In fact, very close to what has ended up happening. Um, we conceived of, uh, you know, the kinetic art piece, um, something uh, at the beginning, the functional piece wasn't in just yet. That was something that was requested as we got further in. But turning this, this sort of interior lobby into kind of a calm space using water as that kind of notion, she was really happy with that right from the beginning. And uh, again, this is a, this only comes with clients who, or I shouldn't say only, but it definitely comes with clients who you've worked with many times and there's a trust factor there. Um, she knew that we weren't going to go crazy. She knew that we weren't you know, going to go overboard. She had budget to play with, so budget wasn't really a huge issue. This was a tier one office tower. Um, and she had tenants that were willing to kick in because they wanted the interior space to be uh, more up to par with where they thought it should be. Um, so it did go through a process of vetting with both the clients and the tenants inside um, to Queen uh, through Brookfield and, and making sure that everything kind of lined up for them. And thankfully it did. Um, I mean, in all honesty, these projects often go south uh, as soon as budgets start getting you know, really nailed down and it's like, oh, it's really that expensive. It's very common for these very large scale things to just not happen. Um, and, you know, thankful, uh, we're really thankful that in this particular case, um, it did go through because, you know, it's, it's created a, a fantastic lobby for them, but it's also given us such a great opportunity to create something that we just don't often get that uh, chance, you know, where it's just here, come up with something. Um, so this was that absolute like dream job. What about the content that's in place at Two Queen uh, that makes it uh, more interesting than what we see when we're out and about at a mall? Oh, good question. Um, I think that's actually a couple, couple things. One, because it's more of an art piece, um, in and of itself, there is like uh, a bit more of a sense of gravity to the piece, I think, in that way. It's not just advertising. I think a lot of the time when we're sort of, out, even with public art too, 
Public art tends to be brutalistic a lot of the time because budgets restrain them from being elegant. Um, and or they're just, you know, the, the artist statement is much, you know, bolder and static. It has to sort of exist within that space in very harsh climate and everything. I think one of the things that kind of helped us is that we were inside um, and we're dealing with digital technology. So that opened up the canvas for us, you know, in a big way. We weren't being forced to sort of brand it in any major way. There is a little bit of branding at the very, very top, but because it's such a huge column, it's not really in the way. Um, but I think from my perspective, the stuff that I see sort of out while I'm kind of wandering around and and, uh, and certainly I have seen some really great stuff in, in public spaces like airports and that kind of thing before, but I think a lot of the time when something is driven to be branded or um, an advertising kind of platform, um, it it does become background noise for us because we're so used to being inundated by that on an everyday basis um, from television to our smartphones to, you know, our computers. They're always pushing something at us. And so I think there's almost a built-in um, mentality for us to kind of tune it out. And when something isn't screaming at you, oddly, it draws our attention a bit better. And I think that was sort of the intention for us with this piece was to actually build something that was very, um, it, you know, I've said the word oasis before, but that's really what the main content concept was. It's an oasis within a very bustly kind of city. And it comes from the actual user experience, which is really what Forge is about. Um, we're not just sort of software builders. We're not just EGD people here. We have a very large group of individuals. But the one thing that ties all of these very disparate kind of talents together is the focus on user experience. And one of the things that we, we kind of outlaid at the very beginning of the project was the result that we were looking for was to actually calm the space down. People are coming in. It's a high-stress environment. The last thing you want to do is have something frenetic and be greeted by that in the morning. I mean, people are coming in at very early in the morning These or coming into meetings, which are very high powered. You don't want to make them feel um, agitated. You want, you know, hopefully at least you don't want to. So you want something which is going to cause a bit of a pause or what I like to call a moment of Zen that as you're standing there waiting for the elevator or waiting for, to meet someone in that lobby or even just walking by, when you happen to kind of gaze at this thing, there is this very quiet quality to it, very similar to what would happen if you were standing at the edge of water, kind of looking at, um, looking out over water. It's, you know, anyone who's done that knows how peaceful that is. And that was what we wanted to bring forward with this in sort of an abstracted way, something which was really almost a light installation, even though it's a digital content thing. Um, it's, it shares a lot in common with light installations because it's really just about movement and color. Um, but in, those, in that, that can be very frenetic or that can be very calm. And so we've leaned very heavily into that sort of mesmerizing quality that water has. Um, and I think it's been really successful from that perspective. And I do think that's why you actually tend to notice it more is that when something is, it's almost the absence of being, you know, inundated with information. When something is just beautiful, it has this tendency to draw you in. If you weren't lucky enough to have a client that was game for this and you mm -hmm. had a client that said, what I really want is five 42 inch screens, <laughs> 
screaming advertising mm-hmm. and you didn't think that was the right way to go for this space. Right. How would you convince them that maybe something more like what you've put into Two Queen is the way to go rather than... <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, as part of our process uh, with any uh, beginning of a project, we go through what uh, is called the discovery process. And um, that is essentially trying to figure out what the needs, the functionalities are, um, because we're not really interested in just creating beautiful stuff. We really, like, of course, that's the end result, but beauty for beauty's sake is often kind of vapid and and will and will lose sort of um, its core quickly um, when it's got a function, when there's a reason for it, when there's sort of a, a driving thought for it, it tends to last better because it's serving a purpose. And this is what we call functional beauty. Um, it's actually something which we strive for with whatever project we're working on here at Forge. And so part of that process at that beginning phase is to suss out from the client, what is it that you want this thing to do? And that's not just from a straight up functional didactic kind of methodology or you know we want it to show advertising. Okay, well that's great, that's one aspect of it. But what is it that you want people to experience? Um, this is what I mean by user experience being the driving force for our decisions because at the end of the day, it's about the engagement with your user. So whether that's a guest, a tenant, a pedestrian walking by, it changes per project, but there's always sort of an end user uh, that needs to be thought of. And it's not its not usually the people who are running the building. Um, that's definitely a factor that we have to keep in mind as well, but it's not usually what should drive the final result because to have something successful, you need to know what you're actually driving for. What's the goal? And what is that? And for us, the goal is what is the end result that someone walks away with? In fact, quite frequently, that is a question we ask um, during the discovery phase is if someone walks away from this, what is it that you want them to have in their mind or to have an emotion? Sometimes it's just an emotional thing. At times, it's something much more cerebral where they want a specific thought to kind of drive the piece. So we would start there usually and also make them realize that a flashbang kind of advertising thing isn't going to last forever. It will seem cheap and and people will not respond well to it. So if they're looking to create a calm space, that's not going to work because advertising does anything but calm us. It actually is intended to agitate and to kind of beta interrupt us to pay attention to it, to get us to want that thing or to get us at least aware of that thing. Whereas if you're trying to create a space which is beautiful and serene and calm, then that becomes much harder to actually achieve just with advertising. So that you kind of have to walk the client through the thought process because they don't know the process. Really, your tr- our entire purpose during discovery is to orient our, our client into the way that we think so that they can see where we're coming from and we can see where they're coming from. That, that's actually that entire first piece of any project for us is literally orienting the group that's working on the project together so we can move in tandem rather than 
kind of as two separate competing forces. Well, and that's hard to do because some businesses uh, are incapable of viewing things from the client's <laughs> point of view. So, I mean, I mean, you have to, you're changing their culture in order to get them to have some empathy for the viewer. Yeah, sometimes we, in fact, we actually haven't had a lot of problem with that, I'll be honest. Um, you know, it's very rare that we have to fight a client's um, viewpoint because most of them are aware that it's not really for them. There's just some things that, you know, as long as you're addressing the things that worry them, um, which we always do because that's actually part and parcel of it. It's not just about the end user. That's just the focus of the piece. But by being functionally beautiful, it also means addressing any of the concerns that might be on the client side. So things like content management are always one of those big things or, you know, making sure that it's branded properly or that it meets their brand standards or any of these things. Those are almost givens for us. We don't kind of just sort of cut them out and move it. It's not about our aesthetic necessarily, and quite frequently isn't about our aesthetic at all. It's about what is best serving the actual end result. And this is where it turns that. So when it, a lot of the time I think the, com the competing kind of um, mentality that some projects get into are because a client is really... Um, they've got their sort of stance and then the design agency or whoever they're working with, they have their stance and it's almost like a war as to who's right. And what we try to do is work as partners. It's not really, in fact, it's what we call our clients very frequently during these sessions um, and how we want to refer to them is because we're there to actually execute something from their perspective. It's our job to interpret that into something beautiful and functional, but they know what they want really. Even when clients say that, you know, I don't know what I want, they kind of do. You just have to kind of scratch a little bit below the surface of that and try to guide them and, and try to ask them the right questions so that that way they feel part and parcel of the overall project and those fights against some you know aesthetic or whatever, they tend to melt away because you are all again moving kind of in one, uh, in unison, really. That's that's the kind of goal is that you get better results. We find when you can do that, when you can move in unison, it makes uh, the whole project a lot more pleasant for everybody, really. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this episode of 69 Projects. If you've seen a project in the wild and said to yourself, now that's cool, I'd love to hear about it and maybe featured on an upcoming episode. You can reach me at michael at crowncontent.ca. This podcast is a companion to the 169 podcast, which talks to smart people doing interesting things in this business. It's also tied in with 169, which is the website to read if you really want to learn about the digital signage industry. You'll find that at 16-9.net. This podcast is produced by me in Toronto and is a product of Vertical Media Consulting Group, the massive media empire my buddy Dave Haynes runs out of his house down the highway in Burlington, Ontario. This podcast is sponsored by Mahler Digital Signage. Check them at mahlerdso.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Michael Tutton.